Well, it is always a true privilege to study the Word of God together. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew's objective is, of course, to convince us intellectually, even in our sentiments, our feelings, our passions, that Jesus is truly the Son of God, Savior of the world. Furthermore, Matthew's account here is not just some information, some doctrine, some history. It is indeed God's breathed-out truth. Therefore, the Spirit can take these, tr- these truths, this truth we read about beyond our intellects, beyond even our passions, and take it to our hearts. He can, using this word, change the core of who we really are. James 1.18 says, He brings us to spiritual life by the Word. Paul told Timothy that the answer to his and his church's problems was not the empty pursuit of relevance or popularity, but was, but was the reading of the Word, the explaining of the Word, and the applying of the Word to the church. And this is why I preach the Bible week in and week out. This is why I refuse to search for quote-unquote relevant topics that might draw a crowd and they give my opinion mixed with some psychotherapy week after week. No, I seek to give you the substance and the structure and the spirit of a text of Scripture, hoping to represent the truth of the Word of God to you. Why? Because I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe the Spirit can use that and does use that to change your heart, to mature those of us who are believers and to call those of you who are not believers to salvation. I believe the Spirit can give you the right response to revelation, or in the vernacular that I'm using during this time, your answer to the advent. In this chapter, we find people who are responding to the birth of Christ. In fact, this is sort of a good template for the way that you read the Gospels. One sort of interpretive tip is as you read the Gospels, look at the way people respond to Jesus and try to figure out what is the right response. Oftentimes, as we see in this chapter here, there are various responses, and among those responses there is indeed a proper response. There is a proper answer to the Advent. Now, this is what Matthew is arguing for. He is hoping that his readers will have the right answer to the Advent. But the first response is not the right response. The first and most obvious response in this chapter is a negative response. It is the response of Herod. If you look there, it says in verse 3, Herod heard this, he was troubled, all Jerusalem with him. Verse 7, he summoned wise men. He, He summoned the wise men and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. Of course, what is he doing? He's doing the math to figure out how old a boys he should kill. So the culmination of his hateful response is there beginning in verse 16, and this is our text for today. Let me read it, just follow along. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, you know, the wise men left early, being warned by God in a dream. He saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were 
no more. This is the Word of God. If you have siblings, brothers or sisters, especially if there's many of you in a family, there's a common theme, at least it happens in my family, it happened in my family growing up, it happens in my family now, probably this will sound very familiar to you, especially if you have many kids. The older kids are always complaining, Dad and Mom, you guys were much harder on us than you are on the younger ones. You ever heard this? The old, older brothers and sisters, we had it so hard. We got so many spankings, and you hardly do anything about the bad stuff our younger siblings are doing. Part of it, I'm sure, is we parents, we're just tired, and we're lazy now. Another part of it is I think we've, we learned to fight which battles, right? I mean, I, early on, you're sort of fighting every battle. As you get older, you realize what battles to fight. But part of it also is that younger children watch and learn by negative example, right? They, they watch their older sibling get in trouble and get a spanking, and they say, ah, that's what not to do. Whatever I do, don't do that. This is one reason why we study history, right? To not do stupid things that people did in the past. Unfortunately, no matter how much history is done, we, continue to, we as humans continue to repeat our problems. We never really learn. But the power of negative example is strong. It's, it's helpful, and it works. Jesus used this as a tactic in his teaching from time to time. Think about the rich man and Lazarus. Hardly anything is said about Lazarus, this godly man. The focus is really on the rich man, the sinner, the guy who ends up burning in hell and looking up, wishing that someone could at least speak to his family members. We don't want to be the rich man. It's a power of negative example. The wise man built his house on a rock, and of course it withstood the storms, but there is also the negative example of the, the fool who built his house on the sand, and when the rains came and the floods came, the house was washed away. Again, the power of negative example. Now, Matthew here reports to us the negative, negative example of Herod, the wrong kind of response to the advent. This is how not to respond to the arrival of Jesus. Matthew, after that, he sort of demonstrates that this response, as negative as it is, it should not surprise us. This is how people respond to Jesus. We humans have a long, illustrious history of hating God, of hating His servants, of even hating His Son. And then Matthew begins to apply it to our hearts and really ask the, this question, what is your response to the Advent. So those three ideas just flow from the text, what Matthew's doing here in the chapter, his chapter of this gospel, with this negative example of Herod, his wrong answer to the Advent. What do we see in this chapter? First of all, we see hateful rejection. Again, this is expected, and here we see it in this man by the name of Herod. This Herod is Herod the Great. This is a Herod that's not to be confused with other Herods. There are multiple Herods in the Bible. This is the first Herod. This is Herod the Great. He was the one that began, really, the Herodian dynasty. He ruled and most, was most prominent among the Herods. He was just a couple generations after this Herod. All the Herods were gone. But this is the Herod that began it all, Herod the Great. Now, the other Herod that you might be familiar with, there's a couple other Herods in the Bible. The other Herod that you might be somewhat familiar with is Herod Antipas, his son, who ruled in Galilee and came down when Jesus was being crucified 
and he was involved in the, in, in the crucifixion of Christ, but that was his son. This was the first Herod. This is Herod the Great. Herod was designated by the Romans. He had sort of gotten a, a deal. He made a deal with the Roman Empire that he would be essentially king of the Jews, the governor of Judea. He would be in charge of the Jews. He was not Jewish. He was a descendant of Esau. So he was an Edomite, or what is also called an Idumean, same thing. He was not a Jewish man. He was essentially an Arab, uh, not a Jewish man. Came from uh, the same lineage way back under Isaac, but he was not a Jew. If you remember, Esau's brother, Jacob, was renamed Israel, right? So he was not an Israelite. He was not a descendant of Jacob. He was a descendant of Esau. So he was not a Jew. But what's interesting is that some of his Edomite ancestors converted as Gentiles to Judaism. And this happened in that day. I mean, the, the people of Israel were supposed to, to be evangelists. They didn't have like missions programs like we do today, but they were to tell the world and, and uh, Gentiles of the saving love of God. And so you had people throughout the Bible, you had people who were not Jewish, Rahab, Ruth. You think of other people who were not Jewish who came to faith in the, uh, in the future Christ, the promised Messiah. They came to trust in what the Bible said and what the Bible taught, and they followed. In fact, there was, a, there was a whole area of the temple that was provided for people like that, Gentiles who were coming in as proselytes and believing in the biblical God. Now, evidently, this happened to some ancestors of Herod. That didn't mean Herod was a believer. It doesn't even mean they were believers, but they did sort of in a surface way follow Judaism. And so Herod was very interested in all things Jewish, not only because his ancestors were Jewish proselytes, but also because he was ruling them. And so he, he did a lot of things for the Jews. Some, some people liked him. Uh, some people hated him because he wasn't technically Jewish. But he built the temple. If you know this, uh, he actually built the biggest and most prominent uh, Jewish temple of all time. This is bigger than Solomon's temple. If you've been to Israel, some of you have toured Israel. If you've been there, you know you've been up on that Temple Mount. It's 39 acres. It's this huge palisade, and now it's all been destroyed, but you can at least stand on the Temple Mount. He built that, 39 acres, with the temple right in the middle prominently. That's what Herod did. Herod followed some sort of uh, policies that the Jews did. He recognized Jewish form of government, sort of inside his own Roman mentality. But in the end, if you study Herod's life, what you find out is Herod did all that for one specific reason, to have power and position and, and really for political reasons. Herod was a man who was obsessed with political influence. He was obsessed with his own power. And, and you can see this, if you read the history of Herod, you can see the way he protected his power was, was absolutely ruthless. This man was a vile man. We know that he didn't follow Judaism too closely or he would have known about the Messiah, right? He would have understood about the Messiah. He had to ask and ask questions about the Messiah. But he, he followed in a loose way, and what we realize he only followed it to have power over people. If people began to threaten him, like a lot of despots, he would just kill them. In fact, Herod killed a number of his own family members. He killed at least two of his own sons, worried that they might take over. One time he had a wife killed, and a few years later he had the next wife killed, 
afraid that maybe she might get too, too much power. One time he took a bunch of uh, close friends, said, we're going to have a party. I think it was 70 people. He said, we're going to have a big party, all my closest friends. He took all of these allies, these people who were powerful and in his kingdom. He invited them to this great party. They all went to the party. He had his soldiers there waiting for them, slaughtered them all. This man was violent. He was obsessed. He was very insecure about his power. This led him to be one of the uh, uh, greatest builders of that era because he wanted to establish the Herodian dynasty so much, he wanted to build these, these fortresses everywhere. So not only did he build his fortress up in Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, he, he built many other fortresses. Some of you have visited Masada. That was a fortress he built up 30 or so years before Jesus was around. He built Alexandrium. He built Hyrcania. He built Machaerus. He built Herodium all to establish his rule over the people. In other words, he was building these palaces, these fortresses, to establish that I'm in charge and the the Herods will be in charge forever. And you can guarantee that this man was afraid when he heard that some other king was born. Look at verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, what did he hear? He heard that this, this group of magi from the far east were coming and this huge entourage were coming to Jerusalem to worship a king, not him, the king of the Jews. Verse 3, King Herod heard this. He was troubled and all Jerusalem with him, so they were afraid as well. And assembling the chief priests and scribes of people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now, this man is threatened. He's scared. He's worried his throne is being jeopardized. This explains his actions in a moment. We have these tribesmen coming from the east. These, this group, and we'll talk about them later on, these are important astrologers from the east. Some people in that time even called them kingmakers. They, they had that much power. They had that much sort of influence, and it would have been a, a very pagan influence, although we believe these had come to Christ because they worship Christ. But they were known to be very influential, and they had come with a giant entourage to worship a king, and Herod wasn't the king. They come essentially to Herod and say, hey, we want to come worship a king, and you're not it. Tell us where this king has been born. And you can imagine Herod, given what we know about him, what Herod felt when he heard this. His Judaism was not a biblical kind of Judaism. It was shallow and surface as so many people in that day. So his plan is being thwarted. He says in verse 16, he was furious because they tricked him and worshiped and left and did not tell him exactly who the Son of God was. And he responds in a demonic, godless, hateful way by killing all these little boys. Verse 16, Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region. Can you imagine if that were to happen today? If someone in politics just ordered that everybody on the leeward side of our island, every boy who was two years younger, two years and younger, would be murdered. Can you imagine? Well, though we see this hateful rejection, it is something that we as Christians 
should expect, and it is something that we acknowledge, is all part of God's sovereign plan. So number two, if you're taking notes, we see in this passage sovereign fulfillment. So here's Herod. He kills all these boys, and verse 17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. The voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, for she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, we have to park here for a bit. How is this passage? What does it mean? Why did Jeremiah talk about this? How does it relate to Christ? Jeremiah wrote this about 600 years before this happened. There in the 31st chapter of Jeremiah, he uses a symbol. Jeremiah uses a symbol, and it's Rachel weeping for her children. He uses this symbol to sort of picture the sadness and the tragedy of life, of this world, of sin, of darkness. And he paints that picture so that he can talk about the beautiful new covenant that God is going to provide through the Messiah. And this would have been a symbol. The people would have understood in the first century and even back, even more so back in Jeremiah's day, this symbol of Rachel weeping for her children. What does this mean, Rachel weeping for her children? Well, Rachel, of course, was the wife of Jacob. Jacob was around when there was a great famine in the land, and Jacob sent all of his sons to Egypt to obtain food and to be provided for. And eventually, they would take the whole family down there. And, of course, we know what happened in Egypt. That family turned into a nation, and that nation turned into a bunch of slaves. 430 years of slavery, of death. And so there was this image that was painted by theologians and by the people of Israel all throughout the centuries of this, this, this sad image of Rachel saying goodbye to her children, goodbye to Israel, her offspring, as they went into slavery and death in Egypt. That, that's the image. Now, if you think about it, a lot of cultures, a lot of people groups have uh, historical things that happen that become images for them of their own plight their own tragedy. Think about Jews today. They don't look back to the slavery of Egypt, but what do they look to? The Holocaust, right? They, they, they talk about the Holocaust. This is a picture of their plight, of what happened to them. Think about in America, African Americans. What do they look to? They look to the, the slavery of, uh, 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 of their race, basically from uh, 1600 or 1500 on into the 1800s and even all the repercussions even up to today. This is a symbol of their plight, Cambodians looked at what happened in, in uh, the massacre by Pol Pot, the killing fields. And you can go down the list. So most cultures do have some sort of picture, some image, some story about their plight, about their sadness, about the tragedy in their history that makes them who they are. Now, this was the image that the Jews looked at for many, many years. This picture of Rachel saying goodbye, never to see her children again, going off forever. She didn't know that there would be this great exodus, that there would be this covenant established. They were going, and they were to die in Egypt. And she weeps. Two of her sons, if you follow the story, two of her sons she thought were gone already. Of course, Joseph she thought was dead. Benjamin was to be taken down in a hostile way down there. She thought he would be killed as well. And she wept over her children. So this became the picture of the people of God as this sad story of their plight. And you see what Jeremiah is doing. Jeremiah is trying to say, here's this sad plight, and it's against that, that sad, dark, tragic, satanic even, it's against that backdrop 
that the new covenant will be established. It's against that darkness that the new covenant will be established. In fact, he goes on, Jeremiah, in chapter 31, after uh, speaking of Rachel, saying goodbye to her family forever, he goes on and he says, God is speaking, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel in the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with them and their fathers when I took them by the hand out of Egypt. So they knew that they had been brought out of Egypt. They knew that covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was established there. He says, this one's a better covenant. It's not like that covenant. It's a better covenant. This covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, verse 33. I'll put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one of his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. The least to the, to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I'll remember their sin no more. Now, think of the beautiful fulfillment here. This is, this is what Matthew is saying. It's being fulfilled. This, this dark, tragic picture is being painted. We're being reminded of this tragedy that happened with Rachel. We're being reminded of, of the plight of not just the Israelites, but of all people. There's death. There's hateful rejection. There's... there's all kinds of persecution. And it's against that sin, sin-filled, tragic world, against that backdrop, the gospel, the new covenant, is established. Just as God brought the people out of Egypt, that was just a foreshadowing of what God would do with this new covenant. Matthew gives us this as a fulfillment. Again, if you remember back when we studied this, this is the fourth time that Matthew says it's been, it was, this, this is done in fulfillment of an Old Testament passage. And the fourth major fulfillment that he gives us here, that the Messiah will initiate the new covenant against the backdrop of tragedy and death. Verse 17 of Matthew 2, Then was fulfilled what was spoken of by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Let me say something. It may come as a surprise to you. Maybe not. If you've been here, it shouldn't come as a surprise to you. But this existence, this universe, this world, world history is a tragedy. I'm mean, speaking in a general term, a generalization here. It doesn't mean that there is no happiness at all. But overall, the human experience in this era of history is a tragedy. In fact, if you, if you just study world history, what you find is that prior really to the Industrial Revolution, it took everything a person, most people could do just to survive. In other words, most people worked all week just to have enough food to eat. It had nothing to do with ownership or passing on wealth. Nothing like that came about until uh, the success of Western culture. Most people worked all week just enough to survive. Before, about 200 years ago, most people had most of their children and lost most of their children to some sort of disease or death earlier in their childhood. Prior to 200 years ago, most diseases would sweep across and take out entire people groups. Just imagine what this current disease, COVID, would have done to the world 500 years ago. There's no way of even treating They'd be putting leeches on people and trying to heal them in that way. When diseases would sweep across the world, and you can look back to the bubonic plague or whatever, when diseases would sweep across the world, you would have entire ethnic groups just die. 
and just be gone, wiped out. This is the world that we live in. People would die in childbirth, ladies would die in childbirth, men would die in wars and fights and diseases and natural disasters. For most of history, there was no preparation, there were no weather satellites, they could not predict anything, no inoculations, none of that for human existence, and so most of human existence is marked with death. And by the way, when all those things were being invented in the last couple hundred years, as those things did come to us, does this mean this world is less dead, deadly? No. In the last 200 years is the most violent 200 years of human history, percentage-wise. We kill each other. This is a tragic world, and of course, every single person, unless Jesus comes, every single person here and every single person before us ends their life in tragedy and death. It doesn't matter how old you are, no one says, I'm glad they died, except for maybe Hitler and a couple other people. It ends in tragedy. Well, those of you who know me well know I'm not telling you this because I'm a pessimist. I'm an optimist. I'm a happy-go-lucky person. I'm very optimistic about this world. I'm usually very, very happy about life. The reason I'm giving you this is that I am a realist when it comes to this world, and I believe we are living in this tragic era. And this is all so that we can see the beautiful redemption that God provides. I want you to awake, awaken your minds and your hearts to the reality of the curse, because of sin, the curse that's upon this world. This curse issued by God because of sin, this has really ruined this world. Everything was corrupted, all living beings, the earth itself, animals, humans, nature, all affected by the fall. This old world is under a curse. But what better place to show the beauty of God's redemption than from a wicked curse? It's truly astonishing the kind of curse we're under. It's truly astonishing the depravity of man, what people can do to one, one another. Give a person a weapon, it only gets worse. Give a person an army, it even gets worse. And people deal with all this tragedy in different ways. For one thing, people try to ignore it, right? Ignorance is bliss. I think I struggle with this sometimes. Sometimes in order to maintain my positivity, I just sort of ignore what's going on. I stick my head in the sand, ignore that life really stinks in this world. Bad things are happening. You just turn on the news. Of course, they make money by telling you the bad news. Turn on the news and you figure out, boy, this is, this is a pretty miserable place to live, this world People also, in order to avoid this sadness and tragedy of life, they medicate, right? Sometimes they medicate with a bottle. Sometimes they medicate uh, prescription drugs, and they find a way of escape. I'm not saying that there's not need for medication sometimes, but I don't think there's any argument. We over-medicate in order to avoid the tragedy of life. People deal with this tragic world by saying, well, I'm just going to be a hedonist then. It's all bad. It's all sinful. It's all depraved. I might as well get what I can get while I'm here. Someone was brought to light this very week, their public, and brought to public their sin, and his response was, well, I'm not the first one to do this. Might as well just join him. 
Everybody's doing it. No, you believers have a different kind of hope. We don't go to these things. We believe in this evil, but we believe that any evil, no matter how dark, no matter how desperate, no matter how horrifying, no matter how deadly, this evil is allowed by God and not just permitted by God, but purposed by God so that He can display His glory, His love, His mercy. And so our joy is in a God who can redeem the most broken of circumstances, the most pitiful of situations, the most dark and evil of worlds. If you think about it, if, if the condition of the world wasn't that bad, then God wouldn't have provided a very good redeemer. Think about it this way. If someone came up to you and said, hey, brother, uh, I have $5 I owe my friend. You, you, can you spot me a five? I can maybe pay you back later. You say, sure, you hand him the five bucks. You're not that great of a redeemer. You just gave someone five bucks. But what if someone came to you and said, hey, uh, I've been convicted of abusing and killing children, and they're going to put me in, the, in an electric chair. Would you be willing to do that for me? If you said yes, I'd be willing to stand in that for you. You would approach what Jesus Christ, in a very small way, what Jesus Christ actually did for us, right? Jesus Christ took on him sin that he never committed, took on the death penalty that he never earned, that he never deserved, our death penalty. So it's against that back, black backdrop that we can really see the amount of love, the amount of mercy, the amount of beauty in the redemption that God provides in Jesus. That's why, you know, you can ask this question, why would God permit this? How, what does this fall into His purpose that all these boys die? It is to show us how Christ will redeem this dirty, filthy world with all its hate. And we look to Christ past all of this darkness. We look to Christ and see that one day He'll redeem it all, and He can redeem it. He's redeeming it right now, one by one, person by person. He's redeeming people. People struggle with this, the problem of evil. They try to sanitize God. They pr try to act like He's not in charge, or somehow He's as surprised as we are by evil. And read the book of Job. Read the book of Psalms. Read Romans chapter 8. You find out God is in charge of it all. In the end, it's all part of His sovereign plan so that He can demonstrate His love, His mercy, His kindness. We wouldn't see it if there wasn't any evil. We wouldn't understand the beauty of it if it wasn't painted against the black backdrop of evil. Now, that's a big subject, the problem of evil. But that's what we see here in this prophecy, this sovereign fulfillment, that it's against that darkness, against this terrible thing that's happened, that God is redeeming people, that God has sent a redeemer against the backdrop of all this, this, this evil in this world, the death, the tyrants, the diseases, the hardship. It's against that backdrop that God is providing us a redeemer. Here's this sad symbol of the past, Rachel losing her children. Here's the sad truth of these ladies losing their children in the time of Jesus. In the midst of all that, there is a Redeemer being born. Well, Matthew wants us to see not only this rejection and this sovereign plan being carried out, Matthew wants us to apply it, this negative example, to our hearts. So let's do this. Number three, personal application. As I said, this is a story of negative example. Matthew wants us to, to see this hatred, to see God's plan, and to flee that hatred and to pursue the plan of God in terms of His saving plan. 
He wants us to see the response that Herod had and, and repent of any kind of response that would be similar to that in our hearts. As I was putting this together, I wrote down, how is it that, how do, what are the ways in which people hate Jesus or hate the gospel or hate God? What are the ways? In it? And I wrote down several things. One, I wrote obvious or outright hatred. This, of course, would be like Herod. This is clearly what we have with Herod. This text is not given, by the way, here for us to learn about evangelizing, you know, atheists or agnostics, although it might be helpful in some way. It's not here for evangelism. It's here so that we can see how much people just hate Jesus. They just despise Jesus. It is that old quip of the atheist, there is no God and I hate him. People just despise the idea of Jesus. I, I saw this when I was away for some training. I saw this happen in one of my classes. There was a, a Christian young lady, another officer, who was giving a presentation, and she just uh, mentioned in her presentation, uh, as Galatians 6-7 says, you reap what you sow. Of course, you know that that principle is not, it's just a, it's just a proverb. It's a general principle of life. In fact, other religions say the same thing. You ever heard of karma? It's kind of the same idea that you reap what you sow, if you do bad things, you're going you're gonna, to, if you sow bad things, you're going to reap bad things. And she went on with her presentation. She just, sort of an aside there, she just mentioned that in the flow of her presentation. The instructor got up in front of everybody and reprimanded her. We're a pluralistic Navy. You can't quote that. And he went on to talk about some things, and he actually quoted from a Hindu text. <laughs> so it's okay to quote from Hinduism or Islam, but you mentioned Christ. You mentioned the Bible. People just hate it. They just despise it. There's outright hatred for Christ. There are other kinds of hatred, and other kind of hatred is a little more subtle, but it does invigorate in people's hearts fury. We could call this liberal hatred. When I say liberal, I mean theologically liberal hatred. Theological liberal, liberalism, it's what's used to be known as modernism. It's the idea that the Bible is just a bunch of fairy tale. Right? The Bible is just a bunch of fairy tale, and you have to strip away all the miraculous. God did not create the earth. There was no parting of the sea. There was no miracle. Jesus wasn't born of a virgin. He did not rise from the grave. None of that happened. You have to strip the Bible from all that fairy tale and, and come up with a core idea of just love and acceptance of all things. This mentality notoriously was embraced by one of our founding fathers in America, Thomas Jefferson, if you've ever been to Monticello, or uh, there's a couple other places that show this, where he took his Bible and he literally would mark out the scriptures he didn't like, actually tear out pages of his Bible that he didn't like. This is what eventually evolved a form of liberalism, where you just sort of take out all the stuff you don't like and only stick with the stuff that makes you feel good. This is a sort of hate. This is a kind of hatred. They may not feel any antipathy towards Christ. They just redefine Christ in their own image and love that Christ. But by loving that Christ, they actually hate the Christ that is true to Scripture. And, and you'll find this. Every once in a while, you find this among theological liberals. As you press in and start to present them with a biblical Jesus, they begin to hate. They begin to grit their teeth. They begin to say things with veins popping in their head. Why? Because they actually hate Christ of the Bible. There's another kind of hatred that's probably more of a temptation to us than any of these other hatreds. It is what I call convenient hatred, or you might call expedient hatred. 
self-serving hatred. If you didn't know it, the most popular style of church in America today is based on the church growth model. It basically says a church is a business proposition. They say the purpose of the church is growth, and because you can't measure spiritual growth, it's all purposed for numeric growth, more people, more money, bigger buildings, or more recently, more satellite campuses. Now, the Lord knows. I I would never uh, pray against church growth. I would love for God's kingdom to grow. I come in here on a regular basis and walk in these pews, and if I remember where you're sitting, I actually pray for you people as I go back and forth in these pews. If you sit in the same area, I pray for you, and I almost always pray that God would grow our church, that people would be saved and baptized, and God's kingdom would grow through our church. I pray for church growth in that sense, even in a numeric sense. But when numbers become the objective, you will sacrifice truth. Why? Because people don't like truth. So you just take out the stuff they don't like and you present them with just the stuff that they like. So, again, though the preachers and churches who do this may not feel any antipathy, any hatred toward Jesus himself, they may even believe in all the Scripture by presenting only the stuff that people will like. This is no different than Thomas Jefferson and those who would hate the things of Jesus. They're unfaithful to Scripture they are trying to do something. Maybe even it's out of a genuine desire for God, and, and I wouldn't fault their motives. I don't know their motives, but, of course, some would not have the right motives. But even if they have the right motives, they're choosing to avoid and ignore things in order to build their own kingdom. This, in it, this again, is a, for, a form of hatred. The church growth model is based on a partial presentation of Jesus and a partial truth is not a truth. Men, let me give you a piece of advice. Don't ever go to your wife and say, you know, these are the six areas that I like you. The rest of it I really don't care for. You, that's not love. That's hatred. You, you, that slap that you just felt come across your face that proves to you that's not love. You love everything about her. You don't just love the parts that you like. Well, if hatred of Jesus is our negative example, how do we respond? I would say, first of all, love God. Just fall more and more in love with God. Fall more in love with Jesus. Fall more in love with God the Father. Love the Spirit, not, of course, romantically, but in love with a three-person trinity, in love with His work, His words. Study them. Treasure them. Bury them in your heart. Obey them. Seek to know them. Find in God your Father. Find in Jesus, your dearest friend. Find in the Spirit, your Comforter. Flowing from that, I would say, secondly, love God's Word. Scripture is God's Word to us. This is what Jesus has said, what God has said, what the Spirit has inspired. This is God's Word to us. You make the truths of Scripture your crutch, your life, who you are. Help them define you, not because they're just some nuggets of good stuff here and there, but because it is God Himself speaking to you giving you life, giving you truth. Third, I would say love all the truth of Scripture, not just the parts you like. Don't just return to the areas you like. Love all of it. Study all the truth of Scripture and just all the truth that the Bible has to offer. In essence, see the negative example of Herod. Do the opposite. 
love Jesus, worship God, adore him. Let's pray that we would do this. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your truth that you've given us in your word. We pray, dear God, that as we here in a moment take our uh, communion, we would celebrate this fellowship that you have given us because of Christ. It is because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, because of his perfect life and his righteousness applied to us and the punishment of our sin applied to Christ, it is because of that transaction that we can come to you and fellowship with one another and be a part of your kingdom. Now, Lord, as we observe this Lord's table, may we, may we remember this, is, this beautiful picture of redemption is against the backdrop of the hatred and sin of this world. And because of that depravity, we can see even brighter your glorious truth and love and mercy. Thank you for this, Lord. I pray for those who are not believers that they would trust in you today. Give them the desire and ability to repent and have faith in Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.